how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. Like many of you, I've been spending a good deal of time scrolling on my phone to pass the time indoors in 2020, and every now and then I come across a food Instagram that truly stops me in my tracks. There's something so exciting about the combination of colorful photos, exciting recipes, and expert cooking wisdom that I think really speaks to our souls. But who runs these pages? How do they end up making amazingly beautiful food and recipes for a living? Today's guest has a lot to teach us all about this and more. She's been a contestant on season six of Master Chef, has published a cookbook of Indian-inspired desserts that's been featured in the New York Times, and she runs a truly delightful blog, Instagram, and now online bakery called Milk and Cardamom that's well worth checking out. It's a pleasure to have her with us here today. Hetal Vasavada, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I've been a fan for a while. Your Instagram is one of those that just kind of transcends uh, space and time with the images and just everything is so appealing and fun and bright and informative. I want to start though, actually, with your debut on Food Reality TV. You, you're on season six of MasterChef. What made you decide to do that? So I was a healthcare consultant for quite some time um, after graduating from grad school and I was really miserable. <laughs> My husband could see that I was miserable. So he was like, quit your job and just, he was on rotation in Singapore. So he's like, just come with me to Singapore. And I had never been in a position where like I was financially like stable enough to quit a job. <laughs> so I, I did it. And I tried to actually start a cookie business after I came back. Hmm. And I like made it all the way to the focus group. And then I quit because I just didn't have the confidence. I didn't like, I didn't know how I stacked up against other, you know, I didn't go to pastry school or culinary school. So my husband was like, try out for master chef, see how you do against every other amateur baker or chef in general. Yeah. And I was like, I guess, yeah, that's a good way for me to see where I stand. Am I in the middle of the pack? Am I like not worth it? Like these are judges that really owe me nothing to be nice. You know, they don't owe it to be nice to me. They were, they're going to be fairly honest. So I figured it was a good place for me to, you know, see where I landed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gordon Ramsay certainly owes it to nobody to be nice. <laughs> well, I'm curious, yeah. you know, a lot of us have watched food reality TV, TV, but you know, very few of us have actually have any idea what it's like on set and, and making it. What were some of the more challenging moments of the show for you? Honestly, um, it's the parts that they don't show. Hmm. So I, I'm out of my contract, so I am allowed to spill all the tea. Um, so one of the things they do is something called hard ice, which basically as soon as you're done cooking, you know, they do, they show the hands up part. What mm -hmm. they don't show is after the hands up, they lead us all out of that kitchen and they'll clean it up, make it nice. nice. Like you ever notice like, you know, the, the everyone's ca um, counter looks a hot mess. And then all of a sudden it's like nice and neat during judging. Yeah. That's like a three hour block of time. Well, depending <laughs> on like how many contestants there are, it, it began with like half a day and it turned into like maybe an hour towards the end as there are less people. Yeah. 
but they do something called hard ice is once your hands are up, they lead you out of there and into a waiting room and you're not allowed to read, write, talk to anyone, interact with anyone. You are to be to yourself. And like, if as you're walking out, you're like, oh my God, did I undercook the chicken? Oh my God, did I mess this up? Did I season it? I don't remember. Did I get this on the plate? And you are so in your head and yeah. you have no one, to, no one but yourself to talk through this. And the first time you get to talk is right when you're up at the judge's table. So all those emotions, I mean, they do this for a reason to make yeah. good TV, right? Cause you're at, you're like emotional boiling point, right? Uh, as soon as you get up in front of all three judges. And that was like the hardest for me to quiet that anxiety mm. and just trust me and my skill yeah. and be confident in what I put on a plate. Um, but the other aspects of it was like, yes, being a vegetarian and constantly having to figure out how to cook meat because I've never cooked meat until I got on the show. Um, and then the post-MasterChef, which is the trolls that kind of come out of the woodworks. Oh, really? So you've been trolled online by people because of your appearance in the yeah. show? Oh. Yeah, I got a lot of from Americans or like non-Indians. It was a lot, oh, she cooks only Indian food, so she can't be MasterChef. And then from Indians, it was a lot of, oh, this isn't authentic. What are you doing? Um, so it was like I couldn't win either way. It was a lot of uh, – uh, they did a lot of tokenization on the show. Like if I yeah. didn't cook Indian food or anything remotely Indian, I never got FaceTime on the camera. Really? Like there's some episodes where I'm not even shown because I didn't cook anything with spices or Indian food. Whoa. So – I realized very quickly within the first couple episodes, like, oh no, I got to keep cooking something that's Indian inspired for me to get camera time. And I mean, it's a game. They're using me for entertainment for this like multi-million dollar empire. And I'm using them to get a platform, right? I have to play the game. Yeah. So I was like, I'll play this game. That's fine. (laughs) But there's definitely like tokenization that occurred on the show. Um, Yeah. It seems fairly transactional yeah. what you're just describing. Like you're using it oh, for yeah. a platform. They're using you to literally like sell like, oh, we have this Indian chef. And it's it's like pretty blatant at mm-hmm. that point. Like, oh, wow, I'm here because like you can almost like tell how or why they casted you on some level, it sounds like. Oh, yes, for sure. Like they they did a couple of things that kind of like I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, they definitely put me in this model minority kind of box like they would give me orange juice and give everyone else champagne because you just assumed I didn't drink um they asked me about the library but then ask everyone else about what they thought about the wine cellar um they would yeah it was just very uh if there was a meat challenge the camera was like in my face hoping that I'm like freaking out about it yeah. And there's there were many meat challenges where I wasn't freaking out about it. I was like, all right, let's get this done. Let, like, you know? Yeah. Um, or or they edit it to make it look like I'm upset about something because it's meat, but I could care less. Or they'd make yeah. me repeat and say I'm vegetarian a hundred times. Cause there's a there's a person you're talking to in those like, you know, camera um talking head interviews. Oh, the the confessional a, thing or yeah. Yeah there's a person they're called storytellers that essentially are like creating the story for the show um, that 
ask you to say things like, okay, can you say that again? Can you say I'm vegetarian and I don't know how to cook meat and then go on? Like they'll tell you to say, and if you don't, this is another thing. If you don't say what they want you to say, they'll find a way to get rid of you. What? You, know? <laughs> you have like they want someone they can easily work with, right? Yeah, that's it, insane. It, it's not even fishing for quotes. They're basically giving you quotes to say to write to fill yeah. out the story outline they had about. Oh, this is what the Indian contestant did in episode three. Like they want you to like mm-hmm. try to cook meat, fail, and make. Oh well, she's never cooked meat, and that's insane. Yep. Whoa. Or they do, or they'll tell you like, what'd you think of Shelly doing this? And I'm like, I didn't even realize that she like burnt her stuff. Like, you know, and yeah. then I have to come up with an opinion on the spot, which might not be the most accurate because I didn't actually visit, like, you know, see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so cr- it's produced. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It sounds, sounds like heavily, I mean, it's crazy too. It's revealing how much is edited out or even filtered out by the internet. Because when I went to look up clips from the show, the only ones I could find were what you're talking about. It was like Heddle Struggles to Cook uh, Beef mm-hmm. was like the one little clip mm-hmm. I found. And of course, it was like edited to make it seem like you're super flustered. And the judge came by to say, how are you doing? And he's like, oh, your pan doesn't have oil in it or something. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. wow. It, and uh, there's a lot of that. And the funny thing is like, a lot of the times where I got very emotional are moments where I lost my confidence, not because of the meat. I could care less. Yeah. I could care less about that. It was more along the lines of like me feeling like I might not be able to do it. Hmm. And I had lost a, a lack of, like I lacked confidence or like I'm at a disadvantage and this is unfair and it sucks. Like yeah. those are mostly my emotions. Um, no, I did. I could care less that it was like, you know, uh, there was like one episode where they gave us animal heads under boxes. Now those animal heads had been sitting under those boxes for hours. Oh. And, th- and then we had to lift the box and it stank. There were flies everywhere. Oh, gross. And it stank. So like I have this like disgusted look on my face because there were flies and it smelled terrible. Yeah. It was like rotting. And of course they make it look like I'm like disgusted because it's an animal. I'm like, I know people eat this. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. I can- yeah totally fine with me yeah whoa yeah that's crazy so what was gordon ramsay like in person he is super nice um he definitely has like disappointed dad energy like when you don't do things um like he was always the person that would come up to my counter during meat challenges and be like i have chefs that don't eat meat that work in my restaurants i know you can do this Hmm. um did they show that? Very I'm sure encouraging. They didn't, did, I was just curious. Did they show that on TV? Him encouraging you? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's not. That's not his mo, right? Like his yeah. mo is like, "What are you doing?" Uh, but he was very, very nice. I would say from the three judges. So my season was Christina Tosi's first season. Um, she, I think, was like taking over Joe Bastianich's role and didn't know exactly what her style was yet. So we didn't really get to know her that well. But Graham Elliott has to be one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. Whoa, that's he awesome. He was so nice. Like, off, like, he interacted with us probably more than Gordon did um, on the set. Like, he always had something to say, like, some encouragement or advice. Um, to level up and it was like wonderful yeah and that's so interesting I, I the the wonderful moments get edited out though it sounds like 
Yeah, they do. It doesn't make good TV. And we're not like, I really wish we were like the Great British, like, I feel like the audience here, producers assume that the audience in America likes to have the drama and the competitiveness. Yeah. But I really wish that it was like more like the Great British Bake Off where like the competition isn't really like your fellow competitors, but more along the lines of like, you and time like can you get this done in this time and like helping each other out in that sense um, yeah but yeah it, they definitely like like we created fake rivalries uh because we were told we were being too nice to each other on my wow. season <laughs> <laughs> that's like the biggest sin in reality tv <laughs> is being kind or nice Wow. Yep. That's crazy. So, I mean, when you watch food TV now, you know, how, how do you watch it having been on a show? Like what's, what's changed? Uh, I don't truly believe everything anymore. Like if it's, especially food competitions, like, um, where they rely on the drama and less on the food. I honestly, I, I very much take everything with a grain of salt nowadays. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't crucify that person. So they edit some, edited some of the meanest people on my show to be the nicest people. Um, so like that edit, man, it can really, really mess with you. I mean, there's certain things, obviously, like if someone said something absolutely horrendous, they said it, mm-hmm. right? That, that can't be edited. But for the most part, when things are omitted, I tend, like, I tend to take everything with a grain of salt. I don't believe everything I see nowadays. Yeah. Probably a healthy skepticism, it sounds like. Yeah, and anxiety. I definitely feel like the anxiety, my heart starts beating and palpitating when I hear like the countdown clock going or like, you know, I feel for that once for someone when they get kicked off, like I get very emotional now. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, I know exactly how that felt. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's a positive takeaway, I think. It's like deeper empathy, right? Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. You know, so... There was a time, I'm sure, when most people that had heard of you had heard of you because of this reality TV show. I think a lot of people today have heard of you because of your books and because of your blog, your Instagram. You know, let's peel back. You've just peeled back the curtain of reality TV. Let's peel back the curtain a bit of a food blog and Instagram. Um, You know, let's let's start actually with what are some of the least glamorous parts of it, of the work you do day to day? Um, Probably all the, like, editorial planning the, uh, you know, editing and figuring out like, oh, what the research that goes into figuring out what I'm going to put on my editorial calendar. So like, you know, I'll check out Google trends and see what's going on doing SEO on your blog and, um, like the little things that make your blog tick so that you can actually make an income. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like they're all important. No one really wants to sit there and learn about SEO, but you got to, um, or, uh, sitting there for like hours and like trying to, I actually enjoy the recipe testing part, but what I really drives me nuts is like the initial beginning, which is the research Mm. and trying to like go through and see like, are there any good references for me to go out there and look at um, what are my references? Has it been done before? If it has been done for, let me make sure that it's different than what they did. Like, going back and just kind of checking that can be a lot. So it's yeah. all like the pre, pre-cooking pre stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's fascinating because I think when any of us see a food Instagram, we never think about the fact that that person is doing editorial planning and SEO. We always think, oh, they're just, that's great. You know, she's baking cakes all day, basically. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm like, oh, you have no idea. Yeah. Or like even trying to figure out what, what type of content will work best, right? Like you have to sit there and analyze your Instagram and see like, oh, you know, it looks like videos tend to do really well. Oh, it only looks like only educational videos tend to do well. So let me focus on that. So going back and even looking at your old stuff and identifying like what works and what doesn't work and being okay with what didn't work. Yeah. It's like, it might be something I truly loved, but if it doesn't hit with the audience, there's no point. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that strikes me about your content is it is fairly personal. You're not just like generic cookies. Like this seems like a lot of these foods have a story and an emotional resonance with you. So when you're trying out a new recipe in some way, you're, you're really putting yourself out there for people. Oh yeah. I think I've been able to, I think when I first started, a lot of my recipes didn't have too much of a personal note to them. Um, and then as MasterChef came out and as I learned that like, there's like a whole group of first gen, you know, Indian Americans or even first gen immigrants that have had a very similar growing up experience as me. I learned that this is my target audience, Yeah, you know, slowly, but surely like, um, they are the audience that I bake for or like create items for. Yeah. Um, because I want to invoke the same feelings that, the dishes invoke in me probably invoke the same feelings in them, you know, memories of like your mom running after you with like, you know, turmeric milk, like holy dude, um, trying to like force you to drink it. Cause none of us <laughs> wanted it. Um, why is that? Like, does it, you know, does it taste bitter or why, why do you not want it as a kid? Uh, it just wasn't, it wasn't bitter. It was this like chalky aftertaste that sometimes it can have, hmm. um, like American, like golden milk. Um, in quote unquote, is very sweetened. If you look at any recipe, it's like five tablespoons of honey in like a cup of milk. Yeah. Because um, they want to like, you know, overpower it. But the other thing is they also add like a tablespoon of turmeric to a cup of milk when in reality you need like a quarter teaspoon at most. Hmm. Um, so like it's, there's like little things that we're just like, I'm not drinking that or uh, like having breakfast of like chai and, you know, bourbon cookies or parley G cookies, which are like two Indian biscuits that were brought over. They're British biscuits brought over to India during, for manufacturing during World War II. Mm-hmm. And they just became quintessential Indian, like breakfast items, tea items. But they're all memories that all of us have. Um, and it's kind of nice to hit on that because people kind of, uh, it's kind of, I guess, the same thing that Christina Tosi does, right? With milk bars, she she creates funfetti and she brings back those nostalgic flavors um, that just really remind you of like sweet moments in your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking about the sweet moments, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the flip side of what are some of the best moments of running a uh, food blog and Instagram? Oh, finding and building a community. I love like I think I've made some of my closest friends through Instagram yeah. like I have friends on Instagram I've never met in real life before but like we keep up every day um I think being able to meet like other people within the com- in, in like food community and like make these relationships but also just kind of seeing um how people are using social media 
to kind of make things better, you know, like a good example is like the Bon Appetit thing, right? Like that's social media justice right there. A lot of people don't realize when they go to Bon Appetit or any other like big name food media that the recipes a lot of the times are not written by people of color, even though it's a pe- like a ethnic dish. Um, and they just follow it and assume that, you know, they're a big food media company. I'm sure this is the best recipe there is and it must be authentic. But a lot of the times that is not the case. Yeah. And I think they're getting a reckoning because there are amazing like people of color food writers and recipe developers out there um, that don't really get to see the light of day because everything is gate. There's a lot of gatekeeping that occurs. So seeing social media, bring that down and let the audience know what's going on in the food world is really interesting to see. And you're starting to see a lot of amazing um, Instagrammers grow because of that. Um, cause people are starting to realize, you know what, maybe I should go to the Korean vegan to learn how to make Korean food, or let me go to a foodie, you know, New York to learn how to make, you know, certain pastries there. I think seeing these people of color, um, kind of sh- li- get lifted up on the platform is kind of nice to see. I mean, I've definitely been someone who has been shared on other people's Instagrams of like, here are some good people of color Instagrammers to follow. And I love seeing that. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting point you make and it's kind of an interesting inverse of the narrative you hear about social media a lot that, Oh, this is tearing us apart. This is so divisive and polarizing, which I think is also true in its own way. But (laughs) what you're talking about is heartwarming and that we often forget. It's also a source of connection and a source of diversity and positivity and furthering conversations that have kind of been stagnant for too long that it can allow big established powers to kind of get broken down and, you know, brought to task about, Hey, you need to, you need to change up your game. You need to change up who you're listening to and what type of voices you're Mm -hmm. amplifying exactly and you have access to all of that too right like that everyone i mean for the most part everyone has access to it i mean anyone can build their platform on instagram or uh, facebook or even just a blog so it is it's a place where everyone can have a voice Mm -hmm. and then when you see you know uh people sharing, you know, content to, so that they can expand their voice. It's even like more heartwarming, right? Like someone who might not have gotten an audience that big on their own. I could use my platform to, you know, further their platform. Um, and you see that happening a lot more. Uh, so it's, it's really nice to see. And it's also another, like what I, and maybe it's just me, um, I think it's also a place to like have good conversation about difficult things, you know, without yelling over each other or screaming over each other. You truly have to like get the chance to listen or read what people and their opinions are and have like a conversation. Um, I mean, yes, there's going to be those people that when you call them out on something or say something they don't agree with, they're going to come back at you with like, you know, anger, you know, all caps. (laughs) Yeah, But there's some people that are like, you know what, I read through what you said, and I understand where you're coming from. And this is what my point of view is. And you can have, like, I've had very, um, what's the word? Like, good conversations with people that were like, we came to a point where like, we could see each other's point of view. We didn't necessarily agree, but we did see each other's point of view. And we left it at that. Um, 
So, uh, but it can also, yes, be a place for negativity. And people definitely use, I think, Instagram sometimes. It's a, it's a growth hack I've seen a lot of Instagrammers use where they'll like spew hate towards mm. someone or something and then try to gather people because people gather behind hate much faster than love, right? Yeah. And they'll follow and they'll share like, oh, can you believe this? Share on Instagram stories. Yeah. And they'll grow, use it as like a growth almost to like constantly be outraged hmm. um, at, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. And certainly the yeah. fastest spreading currency on social seems to be outrage and getting upset or angry about stuff. It's unfortunate, but I, I really appreciate mm-hmm. what you're saying that there is this alternative of actually spreading compassion and love. It just, it doesn't quite go as viral, but it is there and it is just as powerful mm-hmm. in your experience. Yeah. That's oh, really yeah. rad. I want to double back on something you brought up earlier in terms of these tough conversations you're talking about. As an Indian chef, it sounds like you were caught in this interesting position in the public eye in that you had both white people saying, oh, you only have a platform because you're an Indian chef and that's your kind of token perspective. And then it sounds like you also had Indian people saying, well, what you're cooking isn't even Indian. So I'm, I'm tearing it down as not, not authentic. Can you, mm-hmm. can you unpack that? Because that sounds really frustrating. Like I think any of oh. us would be terrified in that position of having people attacking you from two sides for two very different reasons. Yeah, it's, it's definitely was exhausting. Like I remember going on Twitter and looking up Hethel MasterChef and it was just... Uh, a variety of like, you're not Indian enough, you're not American enough, you know? And I mean, this is something I've like had issues with growing up, right? Like I've had friends like, yeah, you're Indian, but you're not that Indian or like, you know, the other way around too. Um, So it's, it's something I've dealt with for a long time, but this was just the first time that it was like, from a mass amount of people like there are reddit threads that like had some conspiracy that I like wasn't really vegetarian or that like I couldn't win because all I knew was Indian food um and I was like no I cook way more than that like yeah I mean growing up I wanted to eat anything but Indian food I wanted tacos and spaghetti and I learned how to make that myself mm-hmm. um but it was it's definitely a weird position to be in Another thing is, um, and a good example of this is like Priya Krishna on Bon Appetit is like we as uh, Indians or South Asians in general crave um, representation. But then when we see representation that doesn't exactly represent our exact experience, Mm -hmm. people then seem to say like, oh, well, that's not authentic because that's not how my mom made it or mm. that's not how I had it, or that's not what we call it, right? Yeah. But in reality, the thing is, like, it's still my Indian American experience. Um, and everyone's Indian American experience is going to be very different depending on, one, which state you're from, where you grew up, were you surrounded by a lot of Indians, were you not? Someone that grew up in Edison or Jackson Heights is going to have a very different Indian experience where it's, like, 90% Indian there. To yeah. someone who grew up in Nebraska, you know, in the middle of nowhere, like it's going to be different. Yeah. Like it's just how it is. Um, and I think we need to give each other a little bit more grace in that yeah. sense and not put so much pressure on one person's shoulder to represent everything Indian. It's just not possible. Yeah. Right. 
but yeah. to also have like some sort of understanding. Like when I was in that master chef kitchen, do y'all really think that you're going to have mung dal in there? Like <laughs> I had to use green lentils for a kitchen recipe. Like I used what I had on hand. They yeah. did not have it. Indian pantry up in there like I you know I wish they did but they didn't yeah so yeah it's gonna be more fusion and less authentic Mm -hmm. but you know like just basic understanding of that and then from the American side there's this very and this was also very much pushed by the show too that anything that is not American or French or Eurocentric food is not considered elevated that you need to change it up to elevate it Hmm. you need to change up the like it needs to fit into the american or eurocentric idea of what a meal is which is meat starch veg right or meats so like a salad and a starch the thing is that's not how the majority of the world eats (laughs) right like if you look at a gujarati thali it's going to be different from say uh, Tali from like two states over or even two villages over. Mm. But the general concept of what a meal looks like, it's not the same. And there's this idea that food needs to be beautiful in order to be considered delicious. Um, and I guess that like fits the whole imperfect foods thing, right? But it that's not the case. I mean, they kept, I remember like when I would make Indian food, they're like, how are you going to make it look good? I'm like, it looks good already to me. Yeah. I don't know what you want. I guess I'll put the rice in a mold. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's um, that's yeah. fascinating. It seems like a weird form of kind of culinary colonialism that your your cuisine and what you grew up eating somehow has to fit this very specific visual appearance and even like nutritional breakdown of, of what's mm-hmm. on the plate to be considered uh, yeah, high art or high class or, or however you define it. Yeah. Yeah, like elevated. I hate that word when they're like, you can elevate this dish. And I'm like, yeah. why does it need elevating? It's delicious no. on its own. Yeah, that's a great point. And you see it in the Michelin Guide, which disproportionately represents restaurants in Western Europe and America over restaurants in South Asia, or even like parts of Europe, like Italy has like way mm-hmm. fewer Michelin rated restaurants in France. And like, there's this weird like North-South breakdown you see Mm -hmm. and that and then even in like if you look at like oh what's considered fine dining it's like I don't think it's an accident that like fine dining is usually like new American French or Italian or maybe Spanish now I guess is probably in that level but it's rare that you see fine dining Mexican Indian Mm -hmm. Thai and if it is it yeah often the idea is like oh it must change you know you have to like plate things Mm -hmm. differently and it's it's just an interesting conundrum of why do we expect other cultures to change so much to be considered uh, like Mm -hmm. high high art or worthy of of cultural consideration you know yeah and it and the thing is from the American perspective they've been ingrained from like the non-POC American perspective they've ingrained with this idea that elevated high-end food is you know, European or, you know, a new American. So they just didn't see anything I did as, you know, elevated enough or worthy of being a master chef. Whereas I'm working with like literally like 20 different spices, yeah. trying to level out each one, balance it all out, you know, and, but they don't see the skill in that. Right. Um, or understanding in that. So, yeah. or maybe they don't value it. Maybe they do see the skill, but don't value it. That's also another, you know, but yeah, it, it, it was definitely interesting. And it took me a while to just be like, eh, forget it. 
I'm not going to, it did mess me up for a while though, where every dish I made, I try to fit into that box that they had created. And I felt like it wasn't good enough if it didn't fit in that box. And then it took me a while to deprogram myself. I yeah. remember like the tallies that my mom made are beautiful. They are delicious and mm-hmm. they don't need to be plated in a special way or like tweezed to death, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like they're fine the way they are. Yeah. Totally. For someone who hasn't had it before, what is a tali exactly? Yeah. So a tali is um, basically a very big, big steel plate. And on the tali, there are different things that you could have on it. So depending on what state or even what region you're from, it would be different items for me being Gujarati, uh, specifically from this area called Gatiavad, which is um, the peninsular portion of Gujarat. Uh, it's a little knob that hangs off the west coast of India. Okay. But um, usually our talis, our typical everyday tali would have dal bath chakrotli, which is dal is lentil, so normal lentil um, soup that, uh, you know, famous all around India. Um, bath is rice. Shak is basically... Uh, if we're going to talk it, about it in the American or like non-Indian sense, it is under the umbrella of curry um, where like if people were, if non-Indians were to see it, they would assume it's called a curry. But shock is really a term for any vegetables or meat that's cooked in spices. Um, that's it. It's just, it's usually the main portion of the meal. Um, like the heavy hitter. And then you have rotli, which is like our typical everyday unleavened flatbread. Um, And then again, that flatbread is different depending on where you're from. Um, So that is like a typical meal. And then you have atarni, which is like a pickle, like pickled mango or pickled carrots or something like that. And when I say pickled, it's not pickled in the sense of like like vinegar and like a brine. Pickled in a sense of like oil. It's pickled hmm. in oil with mustard seeds and some sort of acid, um, whether it be lime juice or something like that. Usually not vinegar too often, um, but you have all of that. Then um, maybe you'll have like uh, a small salad on the side that's like unseasoned. This, the, the bane of my tali existence is the salad because it's unseasoned the lettuce with like cucumbers and tomatoes, sliced tomatoes. And I'm like, why mom? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And in, in unpacking that, it strikes me to this early question of authenticity. Like, uh, as a, someone eating Indian cuisine in America, what you're getting is such a small sample in what is a cuisine of you know, over a billion people, you know, it strikes me as analogous to Chinese food, where if you're eating mm-hmm. in the US, it's very unlikely that you can really speak to what most Chinese food, Indian food is, because these are massive, you know, continent spanning cuisines that are 1000s of years old. And so mm-hmm. the idea that like you can speak to what it is as like an American eating it who hasn't been there, and even like, to your point, traveled around, because there's so many different regions. I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah, you know, this is super helpful just to ground us in like, okay, like let's let's really break it down here. You know, what are what are some other misconceptions you've run into about Indian cuisine in, in the US? So a lot of the food that we consider Indian cuisine is actually rooted from like Mughal Empire. So a lot of the home cooking that we have, like our normal regular meals, most likely you'll never see in a restaurant here in the US. It's very rare. Though now it has been popping up. Like, uh, there's a couple of restaurants that have some critical acclaim that have like, uh, from the Gujarati uh, side, 
have like typical Gujarati meals like um, ghee in Miami and uh, what's the other one? Taylor in Nashville by Vivek Surti, Besharam by Hina Patel here in San Francisco that do like Gujarati food. That's like something my mom would have made at home because you typically don't see that in restaurants. And in general, any restaurant you see is usually you don't see dishes that are like typically home meals. Yeah. And, and the general idea of what Indian food is like the, the rich creamy sauces with the meat, it's very, uh, a Mughal, um, and British concept. Yeah. So when the Mughals came to India, they were not big fans of Indian food, like our version of Indian food. They didn't find yeah. it rich enough. They brought a lot of spices with them. They brought a lot of, you know, cooking techniques with them. So they started adding, you know, creams to their, or yogurt to their, um, uh, and meat, because meat was not a big thing in at least my area of India. Um, and then when the British came, they hired all those royal cooks. Mm. And then when the British left, all those royal cooks ended up on the streets selling food. Yeah. And then the British took whatever they thought was Indian food from those royal cooks and brought it over to England. Yeah. And thus it was dispensed. Huh. But you don't really... It's like a conglomeration and evolution of like Mughalai, Indian, and British cuisine, really. Yeah. But I would say when it comes to like true like home cooking, that is what I consider like full-on Desi or Indian cuisine. Yeah. Um, the type of food that we have every single day that nourishes us on a regular basis. Like we'll have, you know, like paneer tikka masala or, you know, paneer makhni at like weddings and stuff. Yeah. That is not everyday food. People it's do not eat that. On interesting. A, it's, it's special occasion food. Yeah. That is special occasion food. Huh. It's like, it's like the idea of like Americans eating steak and potatoes every day or filet yeah. and then you want to <laughs> like, no, that's not how it is. That is not yeah. how we eat all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, no, that's a fascinating point you make. You know, I, mean, I grew up eating, eating out at Indian restaurants a lot in Berkeley growing up. There's like a decent uh, expat community in Berkeley. And no, I, I loved it. It was amazing. It was delicious. But I'm, I'm now digesting, breaking it down through your lens. And I'm thinking what, what I got was such a filtered experience of like, yeah, you're talking about Mughal cuisine. We're talking about British colonization. And then we're talking about, you know, who moved to Berkeley from India. It's like, mm-hmm. that's not rep- necessarily representative of the whole subcontinent because mm-hmm. it's enormous it's diverse it oh. is you know a multitude of cuisines it is not just yeah. a one a one singular cuisine it sounds like yeah and it varies between religions too a gujarati mm. hindu and a gujarati muslim um a good friend of mine who's gujarati muslim we are comparing our, our, the dishes we grew up on and she had never heard of half the things i made my family grew up with and she's like i don't know you know I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about when she talk about dishes she made. Yeah. It is very different. And then we also have to remember, like, the majority of India is not vegetarian. The majority mm. of my state is, Gujarat yeah. is, a good chunk of them are vegetarian. But in overall, they are not. Um, so there's this, like, very misconstrued idea that, like, all Indians don't eat meat or, um, you know, they don't all eat beef but that's specific only to Hindu religion. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, there's a lot of like breakdown, even down to, um, what area of your state you're from. Hmm. Like I'm from a state that's very dry, a portion of the state that's very dry and arid. 
Um, so a lot of the foods that my parents cooked for me growing up, um, quick background, my family uh, hails from a lot of farmers. They are farmers from the beginning. We still um, have farms there. So we are very vegetable heavy, but it's seasonal vegetable heavy. So uh. in the winters, you know, when there's not a lot of, a lot of the rivers in that area only run six months out of the year. The other six months, it's dry. It's a yeah. dry, empty riverbed. So in the winters, it's dry. Um, so they'll eat, you know, shocks that are like gaju and gatia, which is cashew. And gatia is like a chickpea fritter. So you take chickpea flour and um, make a thick fritter with it. And then you add that to like a yogurt-based sauce. There's no vegetables in it because there are no veggies during the winter at that time. Or like they might be low. Oh, Right. So, yeah. but if you go mainly in Gujarat, that's probably a dish they never heard of. Whoa. So even within the, the state of the region, it, there's huge divides where someone might say, oh, that's not what I grew up eating. And they, they grew up in the same area even. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, it's very dependent on like what's available, right? There might be some Gujaratis who eat fish and we, I didn't, you know, my family didn't grow up near the water. So we wouldn't have had fish or any yeah. fish dish, period. So it really is dependent on like where exactly you're from or mm. religion, you, you know, your family is. It is so, so like, so, so different. Like my food, our food is very spicy because of like we're inland, more dry. A lot of the yeah. food that we cook, um, like the chickpea fritters and stuff, require a lot more seasoning. So make it more flavorful, right? Uh, yeah, chickpeas so are make- pretty bland. And that's something you see across cultures is cultures that cook with a lot of chickpeas. You got to kind of throw the kitchen sink at them to, to, exactly. to boost up the flavors a bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and a, there's a lot like chickpea flour in general is like our jam. It's in everything in Gujarat. We make uh-huh. all sorts of stuff with it. Yeah. But we add a lot of spice to it. And we're known for add, like throwing a whole lot of spice in our food um, because we aren't relying too much on, you know, the items to provide flavor, yeah. the base items to provide flavor. You know, your, your cookbook, Milk and Cardamom, Spectacular Cakes, Custards, and More, inspired by the flavors of India, you know, it's such a, it's such a love letter to Indian sweets, which is something that, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, I did not grow up eating. So I'd love to hear what are some common elements of Indian desserts and what makes you love them yeah. so much? So a lot of Indian sweets have um, a lot of, I would say the main element is cardamom. It's okay. in everything. It's, I call it like Indian vanilla because like, in a, you know, vanilla goes in every baked good for the most part and cardamom pretty much goes in every single Indian dessert. And then maybe you might have some saffron or yeah. um, to add additional flavor. Yeah. But a lot of the base techniques are, you know, using ghee as a main fat. You don't really use butter, but ghee is our usually our main fat for everything um toasted flowers is a big good base for everything either toasted um semolina toasted chickpea flour where kind of like it's very similar to making a really dark roux where mm. you'll cook the flour in a fat so we'll cook it in ghee until it gets like really nutty and toasty and then we'll set that almost like a fudge so mm-hmm. we have a, uh, I have a recipe in the book called Basin Giberfi, which is basically a chickpea flour fudge. So it sounds weird, but you're toasting chickpea flour to the point where it gets so brown and nutty 
and then you set it with some, I use powdered sugar mixed with corn, like a powdered sugar mixture and it sets like a fudge and it just melts in your mouth, but it has almost a similar taste profile to peanut butter. Hmm. Like people assumed it was peanut butter fudge. And I'm like, no, actually there's no nuts in this. Um, uh, or a lot of, uh, we have some ladoos, a lot of ladoos, which is basically any sweet that's formed in a shape of a ball. Um, a lot of those are made with like toasted semolina mixed with say like, like jaggery ghee and maybe some like ground up nuts. Nuts are a big uh, feature in sweets. Okay. Right. We have cashews, pistachios. Those, I think a lot of those came over when Persian, um, there was a lot of, there was a whole ex- mass exodus of Iranis um, that came into the States. Um, I mean, into, not the States, into India yeah. in like, I want to say sixth century BCE, but mm-hmm. I might be wrong. I might be like one or two BCEs off, but um, they brought a lot of their sweets with them. You know, we have jalebi, which is very similar to a Persian sweet jalebi. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the nuts kind of came with them. Uh, and we have a lot of very similar halwa, which is a very like, a lo- in Persian culture, there are also halvas. Um or Arab culture, there's halvas. Um, but nut, like nut mixtures are a very big thing. So we have like gaju gutli, which is a cashew nut fudge. Yeah. Or uh, burfi, which is pretty much a similar situation. Um, burfi can be made with nuts or with like coconut or even flowers, different flowers toasted mixed with nuts. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, no ovens are utilized. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, there aren't really many. I mean, there's one dessert, nankatai, which is a cookie. Uh-huh. It's a chickpea flour-based cookie. But that is a remnant of colonial, um, Dutch colonialization. Oh, interesting. So, but baking is not a thing. Ovens were not a thing. We have tandoors, but baking, yeah. not really. A lot of our mixes are set with either a sugar syrup that's cooked to a certain consistency, Um and then mixed with like a nut powder or you have like ghee that's toasted with flour and then, you know, the ghee will cool down and set into a fudge. Right. Oh, so interesting. A, a lot of it's stovetop prep. Everything's done stovetop usually over fire. Yeah. No, thank you for clarifying that. That's another kind of huge distinction. I think as someone, if you're not, if you didn't grow up eating and cooking these things, you would have no idea. You're like, Oh, uh, Indian desserts. Like what, what type of cookies are they baking? It's like, no, it's, they're not even making yeah. cookies. <laughs> so, it's a lot of custards, a okay. lot of like creamy stuff. We yeah. love milk in all its forms. Uh huh. And then a lot of nuts and stuff that last a long time. Right. Cause you're yeah. preserving it with the fat and the sugar. So they last quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and then you have milk fat based desserts, which is, yeah. yeah, Huh. It's it's interesting because the, you know, the dessert show, so many of us know, obviously is great British bake off. It sounds to me like if there was a Indian dessert show, it would not, you could not call it the bake off because almost all of it does not occur in an oven. They actually had a challenge where they had to make Indian matai, like Indian desserts. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, they kept, they called it mishti, which is a, a Bengali word for matai or desserts, Indian sweets. Um, and the funny thing is they're supposed to make their own koya. Koya is a base for a lot of Indian desserts. It's basically milk, whole milk or cream that's evap- boiled long enough so that all you get in the end is the milk fat. And then you take yeah. the milk fat and that like mix in stuff into it. And 
um, mold it into different suites. But they were supposed to make their own Koya. And that's a very long, intensive process. Halfway through, they're like, oh, just kidding. You don't have, you can use some pre-made Koya. This is taking far too long. Yeah. Wow. So they had, they had to audible partway through because they didn't really understand the, the cuisine. <laughs> oh, that kind of speaks volumes, I, I think, right? <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, this is so funny. I'm like, yo, they have four hours. It's going to take like three hours just to make the Koya. This is kind of intense. It's not going to set in time. Yeah. Um, wow. I thought that was so funny. Yeah, that's super funny. If if you're, you know, is are there... Is there a recipe from the book that you is kind of one of your favorites or something you would you would make for a friend to kind of get them to understand your style of dessert, like your your approach? Yeah. Uh, the gulab jamun bunch cake, which is probably mm. my most viral recipe amongst like the Desi or Indian community. Um, so gulab jamun, if you ever haven't had it, is a usually a milk fat based uh, donut. It's deep fried. And then soaked in a saffron, cardamom, uh, cinnamon, rose water syrup. And Whoa. then they're usually served warm. You can also have them cold. I like them warm. Yeah. But they're very good, very sweet, and like quintessential Indian dessert. Like you have it at weddings. It's at every. It's on the menu of every Indian restaurant for the most part. Huh. Um, it's super rich. Yeah. Uh, and every Indian kid has definitely grown up having like wanting to eat like a whole pot of them because they're just like sugar bombs. They're so good. And they're so soft. They like melt in your mouth when they're made right. But the thing is, there's a lot of technique that goes into making it. And if you don't have that technique, you will end up with a disaster. I would say the difficulty level is on par with French macarons, to Mm. be honest. Oh, wow. That's a high bar to clear. (laughs) It's very hard. So I decided I wanted to make it a little bit easier and more approachable, something that like you could whip up. So it's really a cardamom pound cake base in a bundt cake pan. And I soak that in the same syrup you would soak a gulab jamun, cake, uh, gulab jamun in. And then you get this like luscious, rich, you know, fragrant uh, soak of syrup in the bottom yeah. half of the cake and then I ice the top of it. And I just decorate it with like dried rose petals. Um and it tastes and has the same texture as gulab jamun to the tea. Hmm. Wow. And it's so good. It took me so long to create this recipe. Um, but I love seeing it. I've so many people make it Yeah. during like Diwali, Thanksgiving, any holiday. <laughs> people love making it for their grandma's birthdays, which I think is funny. That's um, delightful. That's so that's sweet. Re- that's awesome. <laughs> I love getting pictures of like little old nannies, like little grandmas with like the cake in front. They're just so adorable because, and it's a good connection, right? Between the Indian American grandkids and their grandma. It's familiar to both, right? The mm-hmm. flavors are familiar to both. Um, and it's not scary. I've gotten messages from people who have, um, you know, made the cake for their parents and they're like, it's the first time my parents really enjoyed a dessert or they really like, you know, there is a very big common misconception. You know how like usually non, usually non-Indian people or non-Desis think Indian sweets are too sweet, hmm. but Indians or Desis in general think American sweets are too sweet. Like my mom will say, oh, this cake <laughs> yeah. is too sweet. Don't put the buttercream on it. Or, yeah. you know, like, she'll like wipe off the buttercream and then eat the cake, huh. <laughs> um, which I think is hilarious. But there's this idea that, you know, 
the other thinks the other's desserts are too much or too heavy or too rich or too sweet. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this is a nice combination of both where yeah. neither, no one can complain. <laughs> I love like, that. Yeah. You're br- bridging yeah. the gap. I'm amazed that didn't come up when I asked you what's the best part of running a food Instagram. You have people sending you photos of them eating an amazing dessert yeah. with their grandmother. And it's a dessert you helped design and craft and share with the world. Oh yeah. It brings me like, it brings me so much joy seeing that. I mean, I had one person, um, oh my God, she like made me cry. She sent me a photo of her, of a little, um, her mom had passed away, I guess a couple months ago and it was her mother's birthday. So she baked the cake and she's like, my mom would make gulab jamun every Diwali for my family. And she's like, it was the first time since my mom's gone that the house smelled like my mom was cooking. Mm. And I just like sobbing reading this. And I'm just like, I never thought that something I created in my kitchen would be in so many kitchens creating memories for other families. Mm. And part of me, it blows my mind to think that maybe the next generation or the generation after this cake could be like their chocolate chip cookie. You know, we're like, Oh, I made this cake with my grandma or my mom. Um, So it definitely hits me in the feels because I remember like growing up, I wanted to like bake chocolate chip cookies with my grandma or like just bake or make something sweet because you see it on TV all the time. Yeah. Right. On like Duncan Hines commercials or even like a movie or TV show, like people baking with their parents. And that is not something I did with my parents. Yeah. Um, Because baking, like I, I, I always wanted to do that, but it's not something that we did. And to see that kind of be started by a recipe I created it like brings a lot of joy to me so yeah anyone out there listening if you do make any of my recipes or desserts please send me pictures it nothing brings me more joy than seeing like other people enjoy what I've made yeah definitely you know baking is very intimidating especially if you don't do it regularly so i'm curious what are some best practices that you try to pass on to new bakers when you're teaching them use a scale okay. always use a scale do not trust a measuring cup uh volume is very imprecise and inaccurate because you can easily tightly pack a measuring cup with flour or you could loosely pack it with flour and you can be like 60 grams off, which can make a very big difference when it comes to baking. I mean, being 60 grams off when you're like doing savory cooking might not be a big deal, but for baking it does because it is a chemistry and the ratios have to be correct. Yeah. So use a scale. You can get one for like 12 bucks, you know, um, online, super cheap. Uh, The other thing is make sure everything is at the correct temperature. So if it says Mm -hmm. room temperature butter, Use room temperature butter. Do not throw it in the microwave. Yeah. Because it will not be the right consistency. Uh, if the eggs have to be room temperature, leave them out, or you could put them in room temperature water so that it can come to temp quickly. Yeah. Um, but those two things will help you at least make 90% of your bakes accurate and yeah. successful. 
Thank you for those. Those are those are huge tips and things I'm realizing now I don't always do when I bake. So there's room for improvement out there. Uh, and it, it starts with basic stuff. I definitely echo the weighing stuff. You know, like a lot of us, I got into baking sourdough this year and weighing your flour really matters because like yeah, a cup of flour is really arbitrary when you're scooping. So mm-hmm. got, got to weigh that flour, folks. What For you, what are essential pantry ingredients that you really think make for better, easier, faster baking? Um, for me, I think having different flours of different protein. Um, so like you have a low flour protein, which would be like cake flour, pastry flour, a high protein flour, like bread flour and all purpose flour. And depending on the brand, the proteins are different. So King Arthur is typically a higher protein versus say like, um, Bob's Red Mill, which is typically lower protein. Hmm. And what that does is that will change the texture of your bake. So if you want a chewy cookie, use bread flour. But if you want like a flaky, flaky pie crust, you want to use a low protein flour, um, like maybe Bob's Red Mill. Yeah. So utilizing the, un, like the, I always keep like bread flour, um, like cake flour and say a Bob pack of like Bob's Red Mill just cause, or white lily in the um, house. Uh, so understanding that and good spices. Mm. When you say good spices, can you elaborate what you mean? Because I think spices are another yeah. thing that are kind of intimidating if you're not uh, deep into the weeds of yeah. them. Yeah, I think a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into buying, you know, local or, or you know, good for you produce, but they should also do the same thing with spices, buying sustainable, ethically sourced um, spices. So yeah. some of the companies I like to buy from are Burlap and Barrel and Diaspora Co., which is a Bay Area brand. Um, both companies source their spices directly from farmers and they are fresh. So there's no middleman. It's not sitting on a ship for a year and losing all of its essential oils and flavor. Um, these are the type of spices where a little bit will do you. You don't need to add, you know, a whole lot. They're really Um, potent. Really potent because they're so fresh. Hmm. Uh, like my current obsession is burlap and barrels, royal cinnamon that they got from Vietnam it's so good. I have to hide it from my daughter. She eats it from the jar. <laughs> That's like, amazing. What a, what a ringing endorsement. They should just put that on the packaging. <laughs> Lara approved. Yeah. My, yeah. Like, she like sticks her hands in and eats it because it's naturally sweet. So like it's, it's like almost like sugar sweet. It's very sweet. Yeah. So, so she just like dips her hands in and licks it off. And I'm like, constantly, having to hide the jar um, from her because I'm like, stop it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, and can we talk really quickly about um, whole spices versus ground? When, mm-hmm. when, if ever, should you buy pre-ground spices? I highly recommend buying whole spices and yeah. grinding it yourself. You, yep. Again, it's you can get a spice grinder for $13 online or yep. a coffee grinder. Same thing, um, yep. So one of the reasons why you want to do whole spices is because once spices are ground, all the aromas and flavors and the essential oils evaporate off fairly quickly. Um, All the nuance in that spice is going to disappear. And you're also going to need a lot more of that powder to get any flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Like cardamom is a great example. Like the moment you grind it, um, you want to use it within two weeks. Hmm. So I do small batches. I'll only grind like a tablespoon at a time worth. 
and then keep it in like a little container. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just grind more if I need it. Yeah. So you'll, you'll take like a cardamom pot or two and do you, do you toast them first or does that vary? So it depends. So if I'm doing savory food, I'll toast it. If I'm doing something sweet, I don't toast it. I just do it like straight out of the bottle. Yeah. Um, I'm really weird where I'll actually peel the pods open and pick out the seeds and put the seeds and only grind those. And then I keep Mm. the shells, the pods for chai. Oh, I've always wondered about that because I cook with them whole yeah. sometimes and I notice yeah, that what you're talking about, the, um, the pod it's sitting in is kind of fibrous and almost like a corn husk. Whereas mm-hmm. the, yeah, the interior are these little tiny seeds that obviously have most of the fragrance. So I've always wondered about that, like what one should do with the hot. That's a great yeah. tip. Throw them in chai. Yeah. So I throw it in chai. Um, it's like the easiest way to like, I, I don't like wasting it. So I just hold on to it. Um, you can throw in chai. You can use it to steep um, milk in. If you want to do some sort of like, you know, a pot de creme or creme brulee, you can steep the husks in that, uh, in the milk and make like a light cardamom scented or cardamom flavored pot de creme or creme brulee or whatever cream-based dessert you're making. Delicious. That's amazing. So invest in high quality spices for sure. And buy whole mm-hmm. when you can have a couple of different protein uh, content flours around, depending on how chewy or uh, flaky you want desserts. So that's kind of the software. Let's talk about hardware. What would you qualify as like yeah. essential tools for baking? Uh, other than the scale. Yeah, that is definitely one of them. Uh, I think having a good hand mixer or a stand, mm. stand mixer is very important because as much as like we are strong, we are never going to be able to whip a whisk as fast as one of those things to get enough air built into say a meringue. If you're doing a, you know, a, a, some sort of meringue based dessert. Yep. Um, and it does like a much more even job of mixing things. Right. Cause like nothing's worse than when you like make a cake or you make cookies and then you find that at the bottom of the bowl, there's like still some butter creamed butter that never got mixed in completely into the batter. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, it, it's just a much more even bake with, um, a stand mixer. Uh, the other thing I like to invest in is a thermometer. Mm. I have an infrared thermometer. If I, I use it to do a multitude of things. One is if I'm making any sort of sweets, I can check temperature. If I'm deep frying, I use that to check temperature, but also to check my oven, because our ovens are never exact what they say. Like it might say 350 on that, you know, panel, but it might yeah. be like 355 in the oven. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps me make sure I regulate uh, so that the temperature is, I know that the temperatures are correct. Yeah. Awesome. Super helpful. I, I recently invested in a oven thermometer and it definitely helps just know what your oven's running at. You know, it's, it's kind of analogous, I, I think, to like, just like keeping tabs in your car, you know, like knowing what your tire pressure mm-hmm. is versus what the gauge says it is, is really helpful for knowing how it's going to handle. And the same with your oven, if it's running hot or cold, you should know that because it's going to change how you bake and even how you make mm-hmm. savory stuff. Like if you're roasting a, a chicken or mm-hmm. some vegetables, if that oven's running hot or cold, that will affect when yeah. stuff burns. So get, get informed yeah. folks. Amazing, yeah. amazing baking tips. This might sound like a left turn, but you have a whole section on your blog all about motherhood. So I really want to yeah. dig in there a little bit about how has motherhood changed your relationship to food? I think it's made me realize the importance of writing down recipes. Hmm. Um, I'm at an age where I realize the mortality of my parents, right? 
that they aren't going to live forever. I'm not always going to be able to get a home cooked meal by my mom. And then the idea of losing those recipes or losing those flavors gives me a lot of anxiety and worry. Yeah. Um, especially because like, I want to be able to recreate them. But one of the things with Indian cooking is it's usually passed down orally and everything is done asrese, which basically means, uh, you know, just as much as you need. Yeah. Right. Um, and not a lot of it is written down. And this is also part of why, like, you know, French cooking and European cooking is usually taught more in schools is because there is a written record of how things are done and measured and ratios. It's really not a thing in Indian cooking. Um, like my mom will say a cup of rice and the cup refers to like the cup that's in the cupboard, you know, like our chai tea, like our mugs. Like it's not an actual cup cup or like a finger length, but her fingers are like much smaller than mine. Yeah, a yeah. full of rice. And I'm like, oh. but what? So it's, I became very well aware of like how much I needed to one measure and make recipes that are reproducible for me. Yeah. Um, and then that crossed over into my blog, but then also like, I wanted to do also create recipes that are reproducible for my daughter for when I am long gone. I want her to be able to like bake the gulab jamun cake, like mommy did for her, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe bake that for her kids and so on. But to leave a written recipe legacy, uh, you know, I would see my friends that have like their grandma's or nona's, you know, pasta sauce recipe or their ragu recipe. Um, And I had nothing like that. I couldn't tell you, how my great grandmother cooked or how different it was from how my mother cooked. Um, but I want to leave some sort of written legacy for definitely my daughter. Um, cause I do know I grew up in a very Indian household. I eat Indian food every single day for my meal. My daughter does not have that. I don't mm-hmm. eat Indian food every single day. Last night we made Spanish tortilla. Um, you know, the day before that we had a uh, pasta. So like she's, I know that her Indianness, quote unquote, is going to be diluted from what my experience was. And if I can give her written recipes of these Indian dishes that my mother created or that I created based on my experience growing up, she'll still have that part with her. Yeah. Oh, that's really touchingly said. What, what was the term for uh, just enough? Astrese. Okay, that's amazing. One, thank you for sharing that. And two, it strikes me, I think every grandmother across the world has that term in their own <laughs> vernacular because I think that's like a universal of grandmother cooking. It's like, oh, you know, just mm-hmm. this much. And it, mm-hmm. it's such an interesting challenge to bring up that all of us, I think, are grappling with that of like when we have like a beloved grandmother, grandfather's dish, it's imperative to write it down if you want it to live on because, yeah, we got yeah. to create a we got to create a record. In my family, just as a brief personal side, the my grandma, mm-hmm. uh, rest in peace. Her uh, pumpkin pie is like a beloved staple, and like writing it down was like a momentous moment for the family of like finally having that captured. Because yeah, now that she's not with us anymore, we can keep those spices and that that flavor and that joy alive. And yeah, no, that's such a touching note you share. That yeah, this is a way for all of us to honor those who have come before and honor culture and mm-hmm. challenges and and um, perseverance in the face of all that. Yeah, no, that, that's super touching. You know, I guess the flip side of, uh, of, of, of motherhood with food is, is picky eaters, right? There's this lovely, uh, lovely side of things of passing on traditions. And then there's just the nitty gritty of getting a kid to eat stuff. So what advice do you have for folks who are dealing with picky eaters at home? Um, 
I'm very lucky that Ilar is not a picky eater. She'll pretty much eat anything I put in front of her. But from a very early on, we had a couple rules. One was she eats what we eat. There's no such thing as a kid's menu. Hmm. I might put less spice in her. Like I'll put less like um, anything spicy. Like I'll put spice in the sense of like cumin, coriander, you know, turmeric. But mm-hmm. I won't put as much heat in it for okay. her. Um, but she will eat what we eat. There is no like you have grilled cheese and mommy and daddy will have, you know, this veggie dish. Um so that was one of the rules for us. And she was more than happy to do that because she wants everything to be same, same. Um, <laughs> and the other is getting her involved in cooking gets her more interested in eating the final product is what I learned. Yeah. So even if it's like stirring the pot or just like taking all the stuff that I prepped and throwing it in the pot is enough for her to be like, I want to try it because I made it. And then the last tip I have is Daniel Tiger. Daniel Tiger, if you don't know, is a show that is based off of Mr. Rogers. Whoa. And on that show, they have a song about you got to try new foods because they might taste good. And there's a whole song and like sh- episode on it on trying new foods. And they then continue um, reinforcing that throughout the other episodes in the show. And that song will work. I'm like, you know, you got to try new foods because it might taste good. And she's like, okay. I'm like, Daniel Tiger, <laughs> Daniel Tiger loves bell peppers, Zulara. You should try them, you know? What a great hack. You know, it's like they have songs about uh, how to safely cross the street. Why don't we have songs about getting kids to try new foods? It's brilliant. Exactly. And, and the rule is if she tries it and she doesn't really like it, we don't force her to eat it. We just say good job for trying it. Um, yeah. Because I know if we force her to eat it, it's going to turn into like, she'll never try anything else again because then she knows that mommy's going to force me to eat it no matter what. Yeah. So we do a, you know, do you like it? Okay. You don't? Well, thank you for trying it. You know, that was very nice of you. And then we'll move on or figure out a way around it. Yeah. No, super sound advice there. You know, this has been a really awesome conversation. I feel like I could nerd out with you about food for a while. I'd, I'd want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so I'm going to get to the speed round here. So these are some closer questions. Mm-hmm. First one is, is there anything you'd encourage folks listening to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own time? Buying good spices. Yeah. For sure. From awesome. that, do check out, you know, uh, good spice companies that are buying um directly from the farmers because for a long time, you know, spaces were a part of colonialization mm-hmm. and you should put just as much thought and, you know, empathy and care into the spices that you use to flavor your dishes or your, you know, locally sourced produce that yeah. you might be buying. That's an interesting point that a lot of us lavish time and attention on meat and vegetables and making sure they're the best possible we're sourcing. But sometimes, yeah, we'll just buy that McCormick tin of whatever Mm -hmm. and think nothing of it. And then, yeah, I've always thought it was was funny too, because none of these spices come from anywhere near where where I live, at least in, you know, mainland US. Like all of these things are grown in South Asia for the most part, right? If we're looking at where do the world spices come from, it's all, you know, India and Thailand and Philippines and Indonesia and Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's, that's another thing that's important to sit with is what you, what you brought up. Like these, these are agricultural products are grown by farmers, just like any, uh, yeah. anything else. It's just, they happen to be farmers far away in, in tropical places where these things can grow. And a lot of the times, you know, they're not being paid a fair, a, a livable wage. 
Yeah. And when you work with these small spice companies or buy from them, they are providing livable wages to their farmers. Yeah. Right? They're paying top dollar to them um, so that they can continue to source from them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just brief book plug. Uh, if anyone listening, I've, I'll put, throw it in the show notes. There's this book called, mm-hmm. I think it's called Spice, A History of Desire. It's all about the history of mm-hmm. spices. And there's a whole section about, yeah, like it's a series of colonizations where, like between the British, the Dutch, the Portuguese, they just arrive and basically ransack Southern Italy, or sorry, <laughs> Southern India. They come India. and arrive and they ransack Southern India and Indonesia and parts of the Philippines to get control to black pepper and nutmeg and cloves, which at the time, and I think still today, are some of the most commercially valuable spices there are and there's just mm-hmm. you know hundreds of years of of waves of people dominating and fighting over access to stuff that now we just take for granted as being like black pepper is like at the center of most tables yeah. that's a indian you know subcontinent specialty spice that for hundreds and thousands of years was literally wars were fought over it's it's mm-hmm. mind-blowing really yeah. even yeah. salt salt yeah. is a big yeah yeah that that, whole, that book um that book Salt is also worth reading if folks haven't read mm-hmm. it. It's like a history of the world through salt. Anyhow, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing yeah. again. <laughs> What's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try? Um, I have, this is more for the Instagram world. I just let it go in the sense that people are going to say something. People are going to be rude. You mm. see something negative, either about you or anyone else. Eh, mute it let it go. Don't get yourself involved in it. Just don't stress about it. It's not worth your time or energy or mental space. Yeah. Um, period. Amazing advice. If you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? I, a big bowl of pasta with like, I grew up in North Jersey in the land of the, like literally they filmed the Sopranos in my town. Um, (laughs) Like where they filmed the finale episode is where I went to like after prom. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So a big bowl of pasta was always like my neighbors who are known as, uh, I was a latchkey kid and I'd always like forget my key sometimes. So it'd end up at my neighbor's house and they would make me a big bowl of pasta. Yeah. There's just so much comfort in that with like really good sauce. Uh, What ingredient could you not live without? Oh, Sugar. Yeah, sugar for me, for sure. Yeah. And what is your least favorite thing to waste? Onion peels and garlic peels. What do you I do don't with like, them? I save them and I use them in stock when I make, I make, a, I save like carrot peels, onion peels, you know, celery hearts, bits and pieces of any leftovers that I may have from like prepping veggies. Um, and they go into a bag in the freezer and then I'll like dump it all out, roast it with some like miso or something and then put that in a big pot, cover it in water and make myself some stock. Um, and I'll freeze that in cubes, like big, you can get these like big ice cube molds that are like silicone that are typically for, I think bar drinks. (laughs) Um, but I use those to make them, um, like cubes of stock for myself. That's a great tip. Um, amazing. And what is your go-to karaoke song? Anything by Adele. I love Adele. Yeah. Any particular song? Rumor has it. Oh, yeah, that's a strong one. And who's somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? Uh, 
It's a lot of people. I would say uh I mean there's the obvious of like my parents, right? I mean, my dad is like a boss in the sense that like he left, he was nine years old when he left the farm and started working in the city. He was a child laborer cutting diamonds and he lived by himself with either family or friends and worked as a diamond cutter and sent his eldest brother to pharmacy school who came into America in the, in the seventies, um, early eighties and sponsored my father. I mean, this is a man that was for the most part illiterate, um, that really like worked hard and hustled. Like that's where I get my hustle from. It's definitely my dad, you know, and, and my mom's the same. I mean, she came over to a whole new country, you know, with her husband, without a degree, uh, without really knowing the language. And she runs the household. I mean, she, she works and runs a household. I I had a working mom, which for most Indian kids was, um, like, uh, blue collar parents is not normal usually for most Indian Americans because a lot of them that came were doctors, engineers, or professional parents. Um, and I came from a very abnormal stereotype of Indians. Hmm. Um, so yeah, my parents are definitely like they're hustlers They make things happen. They make things work and they never complain about the hand that they were dealt. But yeah, definitely admire them. (laughs) Awesome. And finally, uh, what are you grateful for this week? Oh, I guess uh at this point it's a lot i would say i'm grateful that i have a business that is you know doing well despite everything going on in the world right despite quarantine despite the fires despite you know being at home and trying to run a business from home you know pivoting my business like 10 different ways to make it work um but yeah, definitely grateful for like the position I'm in, 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 in my career. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fun conversation. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Um, you can follow me on Instagram at milk and cardamom. And, um, if you want to try one of my glove jam and bun cakes, I do sales every, um, other week at the beginning and the middle of every month. And you can do that. Uh, you can order that on milkandcardamomsweets.com. And then you can find my recipes at milkandcardamom.com. And do you, do you ship all across the country? I'm asking for a friend. Yes. yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right. So anyone listening who was tempted by that bunt cake, it could be yours. So definitely check out that sales website. And we'll also have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes and on our website, thewholecarrot.com. That's where this episode and all of our podcast episodes will live. So give it a give it a glance if anything we talked about today struck your fancy. all thank you so much for joining us today. This was a true pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 